Okay, well, let's go ahead and get started. Matthew 15. So for the visitors that we have in in the audience, we are spending this uh, quarter looking at various conversations that Jesus had with various people to try to learn from his example how we can interact with others to bring them to a better understanding of the gospel. So we are looking at Matthew 15 and his interaction with the Pharisees. So we've titled this lesson, How Jesus Talked to the Pharisees, Talking to the Opposition. Now, the question, though, is who is the opposition? Why would we think of the Pharisees being the opposition? Weren't they Jews? I want to see some head nodding. Yes, they were Jews. They were fellow brethren of Jesus. Is that correct? Yes, it, it, they, he, they were. So, is the opposition always someone, for lack of a better term, from the outside? We see examples of that through, you know, in Scripture, in the New Testament. Um, uh, we see various people, Gentiles, if you will, uh, opposing Christianity. We see that. But we also see fellow brethren whether it was before the establishment of the church, Jews opposing Jesus. In some cases, we see like Diotrephes in, uh, in John, Third John, opposing certain teaching. So today, I want you to think about the, this lesson being more internally focused So opposition that we may encounter from within the body versus opposition that we may encounter on the outside. Make sense? Okay. So with that said, as we have in the past, in other lessons, I want to remember four principles. And I'm going to repeat them because they're going to have a bearing on the lesson today as they have in the other lessons. Always, always, Jesus was prepared to teach, to teach others. And he used different methods because no two people are alike. And so he used the method that was best or most beneficial for the learner, for the hearer. Third, he rooted the teaching in God's word. We're going to see that today, won't we? Because as he's teaching the Pharisees, what does he do? He goes right back to the law to prove the fallacy of their reasoning. Then the fourth is we must have love and compassion for those that we teach. Now, as we go through the interaction today, looking at how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees, And I'm also going to think about Matthew, the 23rd chapter, where he 
issues the woes to the Pharisees. Was that love? We would classify it in today's lingo, tough love. That was the big expression back in the, well, in the 80s, okay, before many of you were born. I think it was the 80s. I remember it, so it has to be the 80s. So, but the, the whole concept of tough love is the fact that sometimes we have to tell people what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear. And sometimes that's just tough. It's tough to communicate for the person having to communicate the message. But it's also tough on the hearer because do we ever want to hear that mm, we blew it? We have a misunderstanding or whatever. No, we really don't. So it's really tough on both sides of the equation. So I want you to keep that in mind. Jesus was able to deliver tough love when it demanded it. So if we're following his message, his example, what does that tell us? It tells us that we better be able to deliver the tough love when it's needed. Okay? And we as hearers, not to follow the example of the Pharisees and get upset, but we take what is said to us to heart and examine what was said against what? Tradition? Scripture. We always examine it against Scripture. So, having said that, I want to sort of bring us to where are we today? What's sort of the historical context of today's lesson? Well, obviously the Pharisees are trying once again to test Jesus. So they're, they're coming down from Jerusalem to test him. I think it's interesting, or I think it'd be beneficial to understand not just the Pharisees and how they fit into this discussion, but really looking at all four of the sects that existed back in the day of Jesus. So the first one was the Essenes. We, we, don't, see, we don't read about them in the New Testament. We know they existed uh, from uh, secular history, but an Essene isn't in Scripture, at least that I could find or am aware of. But just some characteristics, they were communal. They sort of lived together by themselves. They abstained from temple worship. They felt, felt like it had become corrupted. And they were very strict. They were very pious. The next group was the zealots. They had a passion for liberty. They had no problem uh, carrying around a dagger and executing justice when they felt like it was necessary. And do we read about zealots? Yeah, one of the apostles was a zealot, okay? So we know they existed, but they didn't like Roman domination, okay? The third group was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the most Hellenized of the four groups. And by that, if you don't know what Hellenized means, it's they were the most indoctrinated with Greek thought, Greek philosophy, Greek uh, way of life. They were aristocratic, they pursued wealth, social standings, and they did not uh, believe in the, the whole concept of the resurrection. And if you recall, I think it's Matthew 22, Jesus goes back to the word, goes back to the law, 
And on the tense of a verb, he makes an argument, a logical argument for the resurrection. On the tense of a verb, he totally wipes out their concept, their false belief that there was no resurrection. And then fourth group is the Pharisees. They were the most popular, most uh, has, I guess, had the highest population, if you will. They were involved in government. That's important because as we read through the New Testament in the gospel account, why were they so afraid of Jesus? It threatened their position. They thought their standing was going to be eliminated. Go back to uh, uh, John, I think it's John 11, probably after the raising of Lazarus from the dead. They were petrified because their uh, place, their uh, standing in, uh, within the community was, uh, was threatened. But here, notice, they also followed oral traditions in addition to the law. But they really put a lot of emphasis on oral traditions. Now, what is an oral tradition? Primarily, it was, a, I guess for lack of a better word, the commentary written or brought down from generation to generation to generation of the fathers, the Jewish fathers, of what, how they had interpreted of the law. And so these Pharisees over time had elevated the tradition or the, 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 I guess, the belief, for lack of a better word, in one man's understanding of the law on an equal footing with the law. And I guess in some respects you could say on a higher plane than the law. Okay? So those were the Pharisees. And I'm going to make a comment while we're talking about commentaries. You know, commentaries serve a purpose for us. You know, we can go and read about how one man interpreted or understands a certain passage. But I think we as Christians need to be very careful at putting too much emphasis in a commentary. Just like what Jesus did, what did he always go back and do? always went back to the word. He relied upon the word. If we study the word, can we understand it? Yeah, we can. So we need to be very careful about the emphasis we place on the value of a commentary. I have an office full of commentaries, but that's just it. You have to recognize that they are just one man's understanding. We need to always rely upon the word. Okay, well, enough of that. I digress. So, um, and I have a habit of doing that. So, let's go ahead and let's read Matthew 15, specifically verses 1 through 20, because that will form the basis of the text for today's study. Beginning in verse 1, Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. 
But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. But he is not to honor his father or mother. And thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after he called the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. Not what enters into the mouth defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. And Peter answered and said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you still lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornication, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. So, the, the Pharisees are coming to him, and what's their, against whom is their attack? Is it with him directly? No. They're attacking his disciples, sort of going around to get to Jesus? Because in essence, if you attack the disciples, who are you really attacking? You're attacking Jesus. Okay? But they're not directly doing that. And they're attempting to discredit Jesus by means of his disciples. That's really the heart of it. And I just find it interesting that here, I think Jesus is in Galilee And these scribes and and Pharisees have come from where? Jerusalem. They are intent on doing what they can to discredit Jesus. And so they bring up this charge, if you will, of uh, transgressing the traditions because they have not washed their hands. So... How does Jesus respond to this charge? You notice how he does it. He does it with a question. Okay, so the charge is, why do your disciples transgress the traditions of the elders? He doesn't directly just respond, does he? He responds with a question. And so that got me to thinking. So the accusation is setting aside the tradition of the elders. The defense he's going to make is that God's word supersedes any of men's traditions. His first way of doing that is through questioning. 
questions have a great way to bring a learner or you're the person you're talking to to come to their own conclusions. Because teaching isn't about spoon-feeding people. Teaching is about bringing people to their own conclusion. Uh, I said this last week, and I'm going to say it again. Unless the person comes and reaches their own conclusion, it's all for naught. They have got to get to their conclusion about what a scripture teaches. And one of the best ways to do that is through questioning. You think about, and there are actually two ways you can approach the at least that I thought of, there could be more, but in thinking of scripture, I thought of two ways. Think about Matthew 21. I'm going to go ahead and go there. Matthew 21 is just over a couple of pages, I guess, depending upon your passage. And in Matthew 21, the chief priests, the elders are asking him a question. By what authority... Are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? See, again, they're testing him. They're trying to get him into a corner. And how does he respond? Does he answer? His response is really a question. He says, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from what source? From heaven or from men? The question drives home a a, a, a conclusion that they couldn't couldn't ignore. They were were the ones in the catch-22, not Jesus. So that's one way that you can uh, bring someone to a conclusion that you really need them to see. Just ask them questions. And in today's lesson, specifically in Matthew 3, he brings about the question and then he expands the question to really bring home the point that he's wanting them to see by the question that he's just asked them. And in his statement, he draws an immediate distinction between God's law and their tradition. Okay, so um, I lost my train of thought for just a second. Okay, so now as you think about his line, his argument, if you will, his line of reasoning, he's trying to get them to realize on their own the fact that. God's law is, is, is better. It supersedes man's traditions. So, notice that he goes immediately to back to the law to Exodus, the 20th chapter, verse 12. That's the giving of the, the Ten Commandments. Honor father and mother. That is God's law. And then also... If you go to Leviticus, the 20th chapter, verse 9, it references that, you know, whoever curses their parents is worthy of what? Death. That's God's law. Now, 
In contrast, they had developed a tradition over the years that if I had vowed money to God, then that superseded, or if I had allocate, yeah, allocated money to God, that superseded any of God's commandments. But what had they failed to realize about the concept of honoring parents? What did it entail? Honoring God, excuse me, honoring father and mother was all about, or it was inclusive of uh, supporting your parents, supporting parents through your means. You see? So that was, in essence, uh, going to God because they were obedient to God's will. Now, This concept of honoring parents in being inclusive of supporting the parents, of providing for their means. How do you get that from the word honor? And where I'm going is this. Here in Matthew 15 is, is Jesus giving an exposition on what the term honor is all about. Because I couldn't find it in the Old Testament about what honoring father and mother meant. And even going to the Hebrew word, it's not really there. But Jesus, in his teaching, is including that. He is uh, he's leveraging, or he's, he's going off in, uh, in verse 5, "...anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God." He is not to honor his father or mother, and thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So Jesus is making a connection between honoring, uh, God, uh, honoring your parents and supporting them through whatever means you've got. So through that reasoning, he's making a connection. He's showing that uh, this concept of honor supersedes their false belief uh, in, in not being able to help their parents because God's law says you need to. And so he calls them hypocrites. Why does he call them hypocrites? They try to hold up a certain law, so they are uh, they are more intent on folk and focused on Jesus. Excuse me, on their tradition versus the law that God had uh, had set forth. So he calls them hypocrites. They look to be holy and righteous by being obedient in, in appearance to God's law, but they weren't really following God's law. Because they had failed to reason what the scriptures had really said. And then reason from those scriptures about how it meant to apply that, reason, that, that law. And so notice in verse 8, they were providing lip service only to God. But their heart was far from it. 
And I, I, you know, when you read this, you, you can't help but make a connection that faith, that obedience, that religion, if you will, requires involvement of the heart. You just can't go through the motion. You know, it's more than just uh, checking off a checklist. It's more than just coming together for one to three times a week and feeling like you're, you're good. Faith, obedient faith, is about the heart. And then the heart drives the action. And here... The, the Pharisees, the scribes, were all about the appearance, the action, not the heart. And then second, in verse 9, they worshipped the, uh, God in vain because their worship wasn't in tandem with God's law. It was more focused on their tradition And so that got me to thinking really about uh, the fact that we need to make sure that what, how we worship God, the manner in which we do it, what we do, is in accordance with God's word, with God's commandments. Not in accordance with, well, that's the way we've always done it. But we always need to go back and assess We always need to go back and make sure that we are being obedient to God's will and making sure that what we do has a verse uh, uh, tied to it, that we are in accordance, worshiping him in spirit and in truth. And so, going on... He turns to the multitudes. You know, he's sort of finished with the Pharisees for a second, and now he goes and turns to the multitude and says, Here, understand, it is not, you know, what goes into the the mouth. That's not what is defiling men. So he goes back to the original accusation. He says, That's not the case. What defiles a man is what comes out of the mouth. And so he's about to get to the heart of the matter, and that is the heart. And so, but I I have to say, verse 12 sort of, uh, it's a little bit um, funny, if you will, because you can hear that same statement in 2020. Can you not? You can say, the disciples came and said to him, do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement, can you not hear somebody say that today in 2020? Oh, we cannot offend that person. We may upset them. You know, offend is probably one of those words that just is overused in today's culture. And I go back to the way that Jesus is communicating to the Pharisees here. He's calling them hypocrites. He is direct. He is stern. He is strong. But what has he shown? He has shown their fallacy in their reasoning in elevating their tradition above what God really said. God really said, honor your mother, honor your father. The word honor carries that concept of providing support to them. You cannot invalidate that law 
through your traditions. You're in the wrong. And where the Pharisees were trying to get him in the quarter and discredit him, what has he done? He's turned the tables and he's discredited them. So they're not happy. And so the Pharisees, I mean, the disciples are saying, you have offended them. I'm just going to say, we need to do a lot more offending. Okay? We need to be a lot, we need to be ready to be firm, loving, but firm in how we teach people. Because I will say this. Our ability to reason from the scripture is not what it used to be. And so we need to be able and ready to reason from the scripture and reason sternly, directly, but with tough love. And Jesus is our example. Some of the, I don't do the Facebook stuff. I don't do social media except for LinkedIn, and that's more for business purposes. But Sylvia will show me just things that have been said on the internet, on social media or Facebook or things like that. And it is quite evident that we're losing our ability to reason. The premises are not right. How can you possibly come to a right conclusion when the premise is wrong? If the premise is right, they get to the wrong conclusion because the logic is wrong. I'm telling you, we have got to get back to the scripture and we've got to use reason, logic, to make sure that we are convicting ourselves, that we're staying in, in the truth, that we are teaching others, both in the church and outside the church. We're able to convict them based on logic, based on reason, based on truth. So Jesus may have offended the, the Pharisees. But I'm going to tell you, we need to do just that with other people to convict them of the error of their ways. I digress, but I'm going to keep on. So verse 13, notice he answered and said, every plant, which is, which my heavenly father did not plant shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. So, you know, he's talking about this, uh, this message of defilement, that it's not what goes in, it's what's going out that's defiling. He's moving toward this idea of the heart. And he, he starts with this concept of, you know, if God didn't plant it, if it's not directed from God, what's going to happen to it? If the teaching that, that I'm doing didn't originate from God... What's going to happen to it? It's going to be rooted up. It's going to be destroyed. And what about the one who follows false teaching? They're going to fall into the pit. So he's trying to get them to see these false teachers, these Pharisees who are holding up and espousing men's traditions. They're going to fall into the pit because their teaching is not from God. Again, that is, when you, when you think about the severity of that message that Jesus is teaching, it really should put a weight on all of us as to the importance of teaching God's will 
and not our own thought, our own ideas. We need to make sure we're teaching, we're worshiping him in spirit and in truth because both fall into the pit. And, you know, I couldn't help but think when I was reading this and studying verse 14, I couldn't help but think about the young prophet back in 1 Kings 13. What happened to that young prophet? He believed a lie. He believed a prophet and he believed a lie. What happened to him? He was killed, right? That's this message here. The blind lead the blind. Hey, both are going to fall into that pit. Both are going to be destroyed. We need to make sure that we have the love of the truth so as to be saved. Thinking about Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. And so notice he's, he's trying, Jesus is trying to just you know, teach and teach and teach to his uh, disciples, teach the multitudes that the traditions are not right. We follow God's law. And now he goes and Peter comes to him in verse 15. Are you still lacking in understanding also? And he just is very clear that the things that proceed out of the mouth from the heart... That's what defiles the man. It is the heart of man that we have to address because that ultimately is the defilement, the source of defilement for men. It's not if you eat with unwashed hands. That's not going to, that's not going to do anything eternally for the man, for a person who knows it may make you sick for a little bit. But when you think about your eternal destiny, it is the heart that we have to drive home. We have to get to. We have to address. We have to make sure that it is uh, right before God. And so he he, he stresses once again, it is the heart and it's the things that come out of the heart that defile the man. Evil thoughts, verse 19, evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things that defile uh, men. So, I go back to this idea of, and we're going to close, I'm actually going to close a little early. I guess that's okay. But I just want to stress the point as we talk to people and yes, focus this lesson more on those within. But as we talk to within people within and without, remember a few things. One, rely upon God's word that sometimes you're going to have to talk tough to get the message across. Don't be afraid to use questioning. Because you've got to get the person to think logically, to reason through. And that fourth, we have got to get to the heart of the matter. And that's the heart of man. And unless we do that, all the teaching in the world isn't going to solve the problem. And 
you know, you can look at the world around us. You can look at what's going on, not just in our society, but across the world. And we're moving further and further away from just an acknowledgement of God. And so it's incumbent upon us to do what we can to show man that there is a God and he is going to bring judgment upon the unrighteous and fulfill his promises to those who are righteous. So any comments, questions? I really don't know what time it is because I don't know if that clock has ever been changed. We've got a couple of minutes. Nate. Thinking in lieu of all that you talked about last week and this week, too, um, with, you know, our approach and <clears throat> following the example that Jesus um, gives in, in the way we interact and talk with each other, I think one thing that holds back so many of us is fear of not knowing how to do that, how to approach that. And that's why, you know, even going back to Ephesians 4.11, you know, reason for, for us assembling is to equip each other to, and part of that mm-hmm. equipping I feel should requ- should include teaching on how to go out mm-hmm. and approach people because so many of us may be so timid whether it's because we may have an insecurity of our knowledge of scripture or we may have the knowledge of scripture but have an insecurity of how to approach and, and talk to somebody mm-hmm. about something Yeah. and so following that example of Jesus on how he did that it's clear that Jesus had a, a, lack of a better word, maybe a game plan in the sense of how he would deal with people. And we need to learn how to develop that just the same. Yeah. You know, the, like the questions that you mentioned about asking, well, how, how, how do we go about getting that information out and knowing it? And that's something that doesn't necessarily come natural to all of us. And, you oh, know, yeah. ha- and part of Ephesians 4 would be, I feel, you know, responsibility of the, of the church would be to... You know, teach and build each other, build our members up yeah. to give them that ability to go out and do it, and then yeah. to to increase their their faith in themselves. Yeah. In, not that we have to have faith in ourselves, but belief in ourselves that we we can do this, mm-hmm. and we shouldn't be so timid. Yeah, and I think when you talk about timidity, I think about Paul's. Uh, I won't say admonition, but really just encouragement to Timothy, because. You can look at Second Timothy, and there is this appearance, inference that Timothy is not the most outgoing uh, guy, and so you know he says, you know, don't have a spirit of timidity. Uh, and so we think about us, and, I, and I'm not the most outgoing guy. I'd be much happier in a cave. Okay, just ask my wife. I'm just happy in in a cave. That's just me. So, um, so I'm not the most outgoing guy, but I think we have been, um, how do I say, I think the politically correct uh, dominance within our society, where we've got to be PC about everything, has sort of filtered into the church to where we are afraid to have direct conversations for for the for the very fact that we might be offending somebody and that and I'm not saying be ugly that is not at all what I'm saying but there is a directness that Jesus uses on on occasions with certain people 
And I think we've got to have that spirit to know when we need it. And to your point, I, you know, it, it does take, um, it, it does take sort of a comfort level to get to, to that to that point. And you know, how we go about doing that? How do we get comfortable with having good, meaningful discussions with people? Um, doesn't come naturally to others. And so, yes, it, it's, we, we do need some help on that. Yeah. I think one of the most important elements of that is that when Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, because in our heart we know oftentimes what's okay with us and what's not okay with us. And when you can truly say no to someone and you can hear someone else's no, then you're operating on a level of respect mm-hmm. of someone's real limits, their real boundaries. Yeah. And, and then you can build from there. But if, if you don't really feel it in your heart, but you say yes anyway, yeah. you're, you're already compromising your boundary there. Right. And so I think that's, at the root of why Jesus really says, have that intellectual honesty, have that congruency in your integrity to let your yes be yes and your no be mm-hmm. no. And then that supports your honesty and your love and your compassion for any of those people. Yeah. Any other comments before we close? I thought I heard a, a bell. Uh, Lee? I just wanted to say that um, I've had people who have fallen away from the church before come up to me in grocery stores or where I'm shopping at or wherever, and they say to me, they say, I miss my family, but I don't know how to come home again. And I tell them that, um, I tell them, you know, about my experience and I tell them about how to come home again. But if you have that love for another person and you have that connection with another person you may think that person will never come back to the lord or you may think that person will never get baptized but it's little things like that when they come up to you at a grocery store they say hi to you or they say i miss you or something like that that's your opportunity yeah uh and leanne you you sort of touched on something that i think is an important part of what I'm talking about that um, I don't want to overlook. You know, the closer we are as a group, the closer we are to one another, the easier it is to have direct conversation. And so it's incumbent upon us to spend quality time with each other, not just within these four walls, but outside these four walls. Because the more we know each other, the better we know each other. Again, the easier it is to have some difficult conversations if we see a brother in error or potentially teaching error. It's just so much easier to have those tough conversations uh, uh, with one another. But it starts with building relationships. goes back to something I said last week. you got to have relationships with people. Um, and so, anyway... I'll leave it at that. It's, it's time for the uh, classes to come out. So till next week.